The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello, I'm Sam Holmes, and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week, a few of our favourite writers read their pieces from the latest issue. This week, we'll hear from Katie Balls on who may take Boris Johnson's place if he resigns, Nicholas Farrell on the potential return of Silvio Berlusconi, and Lisa Garnett on what it's like to date an influencer. First up, Katie Balls. Even Boris Johnson's longest-standing supporters now think he might be on the way out. His admission that he attended a Downing Street garden party when the rest of the country was living under strict COVID rules has proved the final straw for politicians, ground down by months of negative headlines. MPs complain they've had enough and don't think he can recover, but there are two outstanding questions that are much harder to answer. When does he go and who exactly should replace him? Until now, ministers had been talking up the May local elections as a crunch point. If it was a disaster for the Conservatives, then a confidence vote could be brought against Johnson, with a leadership contest to follow in the summer and the winner in place by the time of the party conference in Birmingham. But after Johnson's admission, several MPs think they cannot wait so long for a new leader. The damage keeps accumulating. The bulk of MPs are keen to hold on until Seagrave publishes the findings of her inquiry into illicit Downing Street parties, which could still take weeks. Ahead of Johnson's apology at Prime Minister's questions, government whips faced an uphill task convincing Tory MPs they should even turn up to hear it. A lot of my colleagues are saying we shouldn't wait until the local elections to move, says one whip, and that we should instead change our leader now in order to change the result of those elections. An end to COVID restrictions, which come up for renewal at the end of the month, could offer the Prime Minister an opportunity to depart with dignity. One former minister argues that Johnson should use the lifting of all restrictions in England as a way to say that he has led the nation through Brexit and COVID and it is someone else's turn to rebuild the country. One veteran MP says that those close to Johnson should persuade him to leave on his own terms rather than risk being forced out. But if he clings on, there is one obstacle that has the potential to keep him in Downing Street for some time to come, working out who his successor should be. There is little consensus on who would make for a better Prime Minister. There is no unity candidate, so it has the potential to get very messy, says a member of government. As one former minister puts it, I am very angry at Boris, but if the answer is Liz Truss, I will keep him in position. Various would-be campaigns have begun quietly sounding out supporters. There is a lot of soft tapping up going on, says one member of government. No one is doing drinks parties, really. No one wants to go to them, particularly after the Downing Street debacle. Instead, it's roundtables with supporters of the candidates. Parties always go for the opposite when replacing a leader, and the ultra-organised Rishi Sunak is a clear contrast to Johnson. The chance that it could bring a seriousness to the role that Johnson has lacked. The fact that he has not been embroiled in any serious party rows yet, despite living next door to Johnson, works in his favour. He has spent the past week meeting with MPs to discuss the cost of living crisis and using these meetings to underline his credentials as a low-tax Tory, who is only raising taxes under duress. However, Sunak's critics are already preparing their own attack lines. 
Expect to hear other campaigns at the chance that is a Dom Cummings candidate. Johnson's former senior adviser has played a key role in weakening the Prime Minister's position, with disclosures over the Downing Street refurbishment and parties. Yet he only has good things to say about the Chancellor. Dom is a dirty word in the Tory party, so any association would be toxic, says one government aide. Sunak's main rival in any contest would be Liz Truss. The Foreign Secretary is viewed as a low-tax libertarian and is the favourite among the grassroots, topping the Conservative Home Opinion poll of Tory members. She is also the favourite among Red Wall MPs. In Westminster, though, she is seen as a Marmite candidate. She has passionate critics as well as fans. Those critics will want to stop her getting to the final round of a leadership election, which is chosen by the grassroots members. But this wouldn't simply be a two-horse race. As a runner-up in the 2019 leadership contest, Jeremy Hunt could return as the anti-Johnson candidate, untainted by the past few years. One of those who knows the parliamentary party best notes that his campaign never stopped. The dark horse candidate is Nadim Sahori, promoted to the cabinet in the autumn reshuffle. The education secretary is a relatively new face. His supporters are making a free-pronged pitch to MPs. He was vaccine minister during the rollout, so can take some of the credit. He polls well with the public and his backstory sets him apart, arriving in Britain as a refugee aged nine speaking no English. On the right of the party, Mark Harper, former chief whip, is attracting some support for his work opposing restrictions through the COVID recovery group. Others such as Priti Patel could well throw the hats into the ring too, particularly since being in the mix could help for any future cabinet jobs. Already talk has turned to who former Chief Whip Gavin Williamson would support. He played a key role in the parliamentary manoeuvrings of both Theresa May and Boris Johnson. He tends to back winners. The Tory majority was achieved due to an electoral coalition, but more by Johnson's personal brand than the Conservative Party more broadly. That means that predicting who could succeed Johnson is an even harder task than normal. He always was a gamble, and replacing him may prove an even bigger one. That was Katie Balls. Next, it's Nicholas Farrell. Can anyone beat Berlusconi to the Italian presidency? Silvio Bunga Bunga Berlusconi was a populist before the, part, the word became all the rage. An almost comically divisive figure, he makes spectacular off-the-cuff remarks which thrill his supporters and leave his enemies apoplectic. He called Barack Obama tanned. He advised a teenage girl that her best bet in life was to marry a rich man and once said, it is better to stare at pretty girls than be gay. In an interview with Boris Johnson and me in The Spectator in 2003, he insisted that the fascist dictator Mussolini did not kill his opponents, merely sent them on holiday to the islands. I wonder if Boris remembers that now. Still, unlike the current British Prime Minister, Silvio's political fortunes appear to be in the ascendancy again in 2022, for he will replace the outgoing Sergio Mattarella as Italy's president if the election, which begins on the 24th of January, goes his way. His resurgence would cause an almighty freakout among the European establishment, which thought it had successfully exorcised him from the high offices of state when it forced him to resign as Prime Minister in a palace coup in 2011. Berlusconi, who has been a Euro MP since 2019, 
provokes in opponents the same visceral hatred as Donald Trump does. Italian presidents, whose powers are largely but by no means exclusively ceremonial and who serve for seven years, are elected by the 951 deputies and senators in Parliament, plus 58 regional delegates. And Il Cavaliere, the knight, as his supporters call him, may turn out to be the only candidate with the necessary numbers. Certainly, Italy's powerful left-wing press is getting molto agitato. The weekly Espresso has dedicated its entire current issue, whose cover proclaims in huge letters, Louis non, not him, to explaining in dense page after dense page why Berlusconi must be stopped. The popular daily Il Fatto Quotidiano has organised a petition against his candidature, which has attracted 200,000 signatures, accompanied by an editorial which reels off every allegation ever levelled against him, which begins, The President of the Republic must be the guarantor of the Constitution. Silvio Berlusconi is the guarantor of corruption and prostitution. It concludes... For all these reasons, we ask all parliamentarians not to vote for him as President of the Republic. In fact, not to even talk about him, and if possible, not to think about him either. What the papers can't deny is that the 85-year-old Berlusconi, who has survived prostate cancer, a heart valve operation, and a very bad bout of COVID, still has star quality an irrepressible, self-made media tycoon whose family owns three of Italy's four private TV channels. He entered politics in 1994 to, as he put it, save Italy from communism. Ever since, he has been the target of a relentless barrage of criminal investigations and trials involving hundreds of court appearances. Yet he has only been convicted once for tax fraud in 2013, for which he received a four-year prison sentence reduced to one year's community service. He spent much of it playing the piano in an old people's home. He was also banned from public office for five years. Berlusconi is adamant that he is the victim of a witch hunt by the Toge Rosse, the Red Cloaks, as Italy's notoriously left-wing prosecuting judges are nicknamed. And a heck of a lot of Italians who have plenty of experience themselves of Italy's politicised and sclerotic justice system agree. Otherwise, they would not have made him Prime Minister four times. Berlusconi remains a popular figure in Italy in spite of the endless media and judicial campaigns against him. But the judges are still hounding him on several fronts, most notably in a trial now in its seventh year in which he is accused of bribing young women to give false testimony at a previous trial looking into what happened during his notorious bunga bunga parties and what he got up to with the then 17-year-old Karima El Maruga, also known as Ruby the Heart Stealer. Yet at that earlier trial, in which he was acquitted in 2014 on appeal of paying for sex with Ruby when she was a minor, whatever it was those other female guests did witness, it was not Berlusconi and Ruby in flagrante. But Berlusconi has in abundance what English football managers like to call bounce-back ability. 
To win the presidency in the first round of voting, a candidate must achieve a two-thirds majority, which no one ever does. If, however, nobody wins two-thirds of the vote after three rounds, a simple majority is enough. That is how Berlusconi hopes to win. He's guaranteed the votes of the three parties in the coalition of the right, which leaves him about 50-odd votes short of the 500-odd he needs for victory. On Tuesday, he travelled to Rome from his home outside Milan to launch what he has called Operazione Squiatolo, Operation Squirrel. His aim is to root around in search of parliamentarians who might potentially vote for him. He hopes to find backers across the political spectrum prepared to vote in secret for him in that crucial fourth ballot, in particular in the smaller centrist parties, including the former Prime Minister Matteo Renzi's Italia Viva. The popular, albeit unelected, Prime Minister Mario Draghi is the main obstacle in his way. The ex-boss of the European Central Bank and former managing director of Goldman Sachs has said he wants to be president, but nearly all parliamentarians are desperate to keep him on as prime minister. That is because if Draghi did become president, it would almost certainly mean a snap general election as the Italian Parliament will fail to agree on a replacement Prime Minister. And that is the last thing parties such as the outlet Five Star, which has the most seats in Parliament, and the post-communist Partito Democratico, which has the third most, want. Support for Five Star has collapsed to about 15% in the polls, so naturally it wants to delay elections as long as possible. And while the Partito Democratico vies for pole position with the radical right Lega, which has the second most seats in Parliament, and the post-fascist Fratelli d'Italia as the most popular party in the opinion polls, all of them on about 20%, it has little chance of doing well enough in an election to be able to form any sort of government. The parties of the right, on the other hand, which include Berlusconi's Forza Italia, polling about 9%, should be able to win enough votes at a snap election to form a new coalition government, since combined they are polling at nearly 50%. They have much less to fear and much more to gain from a snap election, but nor are the Lega and Forza Italia keen on elections now and also want Draghi to remain as Prime Minister, in their case to help Bolisconi get elected President. Only Fratelli d'Italia, which got 4% of the vote at the 2018 election, but whose support has rocketed since, want immediate elections. Even though they support the Berlusconi candidacy, they oppose the unelected Draghi premiership even more. There are other less noble reasons why many deputies and senators are determined to keep Draghi as prime minister. Firstly, if those elected for the first time fail to serve the entire five-year mandate, they lose their entitlement to their scandalously high pensions. And secondly, a major parliamentary reform due to come into force at the next election, which must be held by June next year, has slashed the number of deputies and senators by one-third. Berlusconi hopes to force first-term parliamentarians, as well as others whose seats will disappear, under the parliamentary reform, to vote for him by appealing to their selfish side. He'll tell them, vote for me as president or it's Draghi as president. And that means new elections, because neither Forza Italia, his party, nor the other two right-wing parties will support any replacement prime ministerial candidate. And if that happens, 
they will lose their pension and or their seat. His left-wing opponents, meanwhile, are trying to find a viable alternative presidential candidate with a chance of victory. That isn't easy. The two names most mentioned are Mattarella, who is from the Partito Democratico, and who is 80 and adamant that he does not want to stand for a second term, and Paolo Gentiloni, also from the Partito Democratico, yet another recent prime minister, who is currently EU economics commissioner. However, it is virtually impossible to see him getting the necessary support from the centre, let alone the right. Berlusconi's favourite philosophical tract is Erasmus of Rotterdam's In Praise of Folly, published originally in 1511, the central thesis of which is that madness is a vital creative force. In the preface to a modern Italian edition of the work he wrote, true and genuine wisdom is thus not found in rational behaviour which is necessarily complicit with the normal and thus by definition sterile, but in far-sighted visionary madness. Before Christmas, the judges at his Bunga Bunga trial tried to subject him to psychiatric analysis, which many saw as a trick to get him certified insane and thus destroy his ambition of becoming president. He refused, even though that meant that the rest of the trial will take place in his absence. As Alessandro Sulusti, the editor of the right-wing daily Libero, for years an outspoken critic of Italy's politicised judges and a leading supporter of Berlusconi, wrote... There is no need for an assessment to establish if Berlusconi is mad. Berlusconi is mad. Anyone who has achieved what he has achieved cannot be anything else. The craziest, and we must assume final, chapter of the Silvio story might be about to commence. That was Nicholas Farrell. And finally, Lisa Garnett. I'm sharing my boyfriend with 60,000 other people. I fell in love with a social media influencer. I could say there are three people in our relationship, but I'd be lying. There are 63,423. Imagine a world in which your partner's private life is his professional life, with thousands of fawning acolytes all vying for his approval, all competing for online traction, attraction that comes from your other half's thumbs. His fingers hover over the phone rather a lot, giving updates into whatever he's up to. It's a little disconcerting. Life with an influencer can be challenging. Every trip must be documented. Every meal photographed prior to consumption. I've lost count of the number of times I've prematurely reached for a morsel, only to have my hand slapped away so that the plateful in question can be snapped. Did we order for us? his followers. Work trips abroad for social media stars are often chaperoned. This means being escorted by what most men in their 50s might call a hot chick. It's not so easy to watch your man, the person you reprimand for forgetting to wash up, being wine dined and mercilessly flattered by a group of mortals with fewer likes. The most terrifying thing about dating an influencer is that his past life has already been well documented. Every dinner with his previous lover has been catalogued and every excursion filmed. You simply must resist the temptation to look. 
I was told of an influencer who organised a glamorous and Instagrammable photo op birthday party for her partner months in advance on the assumption that she would attend. But the couple broke up and her replacement went in her place. The influencer in question was too scared of being blocked by her now ex to make a fuss, since he had a much bigger platform online. To an influencer, the pain of a broken heart is as nothing to the possibility of being excluded from larger circles of digital influence. Influencers are today's ad agencies, so product press launches are staged for Instagram and often feature huge bunches of costly flowers, ridiculous straw baskets bounteously filled with unctuous cheeses, gingham tablecloths, flags, flutes, champagne, truffles, expensively heated rooftop bars and as many pretty looking influencers as a good PR firm can muster. Attendees are not paid, but are sucked up to there's a sort of unspoken reciprocal bond. A good relationship with a well-placed PR firm will reap dividends in the form of free press trips abroad to high-end hotels and restaurants with Insta-worthy day trips on tap. These won't pay the ever-rising electricity bill, but a good profile will open the door to other paid gigs. It's a hustle with which journalists are familiar, but journalists do not command anything like the flattery and, eventually, fees that influencers can. Exposure is the new currency. But the downsides are considerable, especially if you happen to be the poor sod in a relationship with an influencer. My man has of course banned me from using his name in print. In a job, you sell your work. On social media, you sell yourself. On Instagram, constancy, aka addiction, is rewarded and to grow your following you must engage ever more frequently. Hamsters in perspex balls have more dignity than these Instagrammers who tell you what they ate, drank, saw and liked. The most off-potting aspect for me is the almost soft porn replies of would-be influencers, desperate as they are for reciprocal fake enthusiasm in exchange. Yum, fake lick emoji, yes! I love it when you post, etc. There's obviously a place for social media. Like it or not, it's part of our lives. Yet, how do we train ourselves to treat it as a willing slave rather than a cruel master? More pressingly for me, is it possible for a relationship to flourish when one half spends the vast majority of his time looking back at himself through an Instagram filtered lens? That was Lisa Garnett. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review this podcast on our Best of Spectator channel and pick up this week's issue to read more great articles like these three. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with another Spectator Out Loud next week.